This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb or mention the promo code mtb when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. The finale of our four-part discussion about e-mountain bikes is a panel discussion with a number of representatives from all over. I'm very excited to not only bring these people together, but to share this conversation with you. The entire episode is a little over the one hour mark, so just a reminder to stay tuned until the very end. You don't need to do it all in one sitting. Take advantage of the pause button. After the panel discussion, I have some news about where I'll be over the next week, and perhaps if you're in the Central Coast, California area, you can come by for a visit. Without any further delay, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 39 of Frontlines. So first off, I just want to welcome everybody to the show and, and say thank you for, for joining me. And, and uh, first off, I'd like to introduce Joshua Rebinock, and he's the founder and creator of City MTB, and also with the Cayuna Lakes mountain bike crew out in Minnesota. Hi, Joshua. Hello. And second, I'd like to introduce Yvonne Kraus. Uh, she's a past guest and executive director of the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance in Washington State. Hi, Yvonne. Thanks for having me back, Brent. And Jerry Greer, longtime supporter of the show and president of the Sorba Tri-Cities out in Tennessee. Hi, Jerry. Hi. How are you? Good. And Wendy Sweet is the president of the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance out in Colorado. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Brent. Finally, Cooper Quinn. He's the vice president of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association out in Vancouver, Canada. Hi, Cooper. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And thanks to, to everybody for finding the time and sitting down. I'm, I'm really excited about this. What I want to start with, because it's kind of in the news right now, is is with Washington State, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of discussion. And, and some of what's been in the media right now has been sensationalized. So, Yvonne, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of starting us off a little bit, what's um, what's been happening in Washington State with uh, legislation? And, and, you know, what's the what's really going on there? Because I think some of us have seen some stuff that might not necessarily be 100 percent accurate uh, out in the media. Sure, thank you. Um, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to clarify, right? Because as you mentioned, the media has been, um, or particularly social media has been interesting about what it is that we actually did. So in short, uh, Washington did not have a regulatory environment for e-bikes and the urban commuting need was getting to a point where that regulatory environment needed to be created. So we began to work with the local Cascade Bicycle Club, which is an urban commuting and cycling club in the greater Seattle area. 
And they really spearheaded the need for this legislation, began the discussions, and then engaged us in making sure that we also addressed e-bike use on soft surface trail. So it became a collaboration to identify urban commuting needs and EMTP commuting, well, excuse me, recreational needs. And we worked with the recreation advisor to the governor, John Snyder, to make it all come together. So my main priority was to ensure that this legislation would treat e-bikes differently when it came to hard surface trails and soft surface trails, because the conditions and the needs are just not the same. So where we landed is that Washington State recently classified e-bikes as bikes as long as they are less than 750 watts and uh, allows class one and two bikes up to 20 miles an hour. So that is pedal assist and throttle on paved, hard surface, regional commuter trails and streets. And it treats trails closed unless signed open for those same class one and two bikes unless the land manager decides to adopt a e-bike specific policy. And then the other two items that accomplishes that it gives land managers specific authority to adopt e-bike policies, which didn't exist prior in Washington state. It also requires that if one trail is identified as e-bike legal, then when that trail crosses multiple land uh, owners, so own, uh, lands owned by different or managed by different land managers, that the same policy must be adopted for the length of that trail so that you couldn't be in a situation where, you know, a portion of that trail is open and then you get to a different land manager and that next section is closed. So those are really the three key things that this legislation accomplished. Um, and it allows us to now work with land managers to inform them, uh, allow those land managers to adopt policies and allows us to uh, introduce the technology well. So I think one of the the big things that uh, that that comes out of that is is this just provides land managers with a tool. Is there particular land managers that this is pertaining to, or or maybe particular land managers that this isn't pertaining to? Yeah, good question and good clarification. This is state policy, right? So this policy excludes any federal lands, BLM, um, but it applies to the state agencies, which here in Washington state is DNR, state parks, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, and then local parks, local jurisdictions could adopt that state policy uh, as well. So for for everybody else on on the panel, is there uh, similar legislation that is passed in in anybody's uh, particular state or province right now? Uh, Wendy, would you mind uh, starting for us out in Colorado? Uh, yeah. So last August, uh, the state of Colorado did pass some legislature over the e-bikes, and they did use the People for Bikes recommendation. So they did acknowledge. There are three classes of e-bikes, class one, two, and three, and that class one and two can be ridden on any bike, pedestrian, or multi-use paths, uh, and class three must be ridden on a road. Uh, this law does not address off-use, off-road uses, and uh, it is still up to the land manager, city or county, if they want to have further enforcement of this law. So if 
those entities do not make any e-bike policy, then the state law holds. However, they are free to go ahead and make further regulations and uh, ban them from those multi-use bike and pedestrian paths if that is their desire. And, uh, and Jerry, uh, what's the case out in Tennessee right now? Ours is basically the same. Um, class one and class two open, basically they're just, they're considered a bicycle, mm-hmm. human powered, except for the fact that they give the local government or state agency, they have the final jurisdiction. They have the, the final choice. Like, um, all of our state parks that we have trails in and city parks, basically they are prohibited on uh, trails where we share with the hiker. Gotcha. So if there, if it's, if it's not a single use trail, which we do have this coming here in Johnson city, we have the downtown bike park, which is going to be open. All the single use trails will allow for um, e-bike, but where trails are uh, shared with hikers, they're, they're prohibited. And, uh, and Joshua, what about Minnesota? In uh, Minnesota, the state has adopted most of the language from People for Bikes for uh, e-bikes on uh, public roads. So that's DOT here in the Minnesota. The state of Minnesota, DNR, that's the Department of uh, Recreation, or uh, sorry, the Department of Natural Resources, um, they have also... Uh, adopted the DOT standard because Minnesota has a lot of paved rails to trails um, type trails, hundreds and hundreds of miles of those. So on any uh, single track that is on state land, class one e-mountain bikes are allowed. That's not much because most of our uh, single track mileage is actually county, city, regional, and uh, private green space. And Cooper, what about British Columbia? So BC doesn't actually um, really have anything at this point in time, and I think it's kind of, uh, I can't speak to other provinces, but there's no actual kind of the class one, class two, class three designation that's common in the States and elsewhere. It doesn't actually really exist here either. There's um, the only real designation at all for e-bikes is currently uh, under the Motor Vehicle Safety Act, which is their motor-assisted cycles. Um, which is, I think, 500 watts or less, and they have to have pedals, but they can have throttles, so it's kind of class one and class two. Um, but then that also doesn't apply to off-road vehicles at all. So, um, you know, I think we're, uh, there's a lot of land managers talking about it up here, certainly rec sites and trails BC, um, which is a division of the Ministry of Forest, Lands, and Resources office, um, is supposed to be enacting some policy here in the relatively near future to, I think it's going to be kind of similar to what's in Washington state, um, but that will only apply to specific trails uh, on crown land. So I do expect that to kind of uh, be looked to by some of the other land managers, you know, municipalities and uh, stuff like that in BC, but currently there's basically nothing um, with the exception of some specific land managers may have their own policies. Um, But most of those are legacy policies based on motorized vehicles, not, you know, electric bicycles specifically. And so the next thing that I'd like to to know from everybody is uh, currently does your organization have a, a policy on this 
particular topic. And, and so I know that, um, it can be a little bit confusing sometimes because we all wear multiple hats out there. And so I do want to hear uh, everybody's own personal opinion, because I know sometimes that can uh, be different than what perhaps your organization's policy might be. Um, and if, and if it, if you'd like to kind of precursor that or, or afterwards say that, like, look, this is my personal opinion, but not necessarily the official stance of, of our organization, by all means, uh, please feel comfortable doing that. Um, but maybe just start off with what is, um, what is everybody's organization doing right now? Or, or is there a policy in place? Or is that being discussed? Does anybody have an official policy right now as an organization? BMA did make a statement in the beginning of this year that is a non-statement statement that uh, the media did ask where we were at. And so we said we are still researching this topic and uh, we, we do that do have that up on our website. It's about a page long of we're not sure yet. And, and just to clarify, because I know acronyms can always be challenging for, for everybody, BMA is in uh, the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance, just so everybody's uh, uh, on the same page there. Um, does anybody, any other organizations have a similar or, or perhaps different policy? Brent, in Washington State, we at Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance are not going to adopt a very specific policy around e-bikes because we do not have the ability to actually adopt policies for the lands on which we ride. Right. So we feel it is our mission uh, to inform the land managers to make the best decision to help deliver research information, meet with land managers, meet with our members, riders in Washington state to best inform the land managers to make policy. But we at the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance won't adopt a specific position around it. Um, that's perhaps a little bit of a non-answer as well, like <laughs> Wendy mentioned, but I think what we have to be careful of is that as advocacy organizations, should we take a very strong position, uh, and not that this may or will happen by any means, but if we take a strong position about whether e-bikes should or should not be allowed and land managers take our recommendation, apply that to their trails, and then something does happen, then there's a legal responsibility that could be pointing back to us. And therefore, we're careful. We want to advise the land managers. We want to advise our membership. Uh, we want to do the best we can to get as many people out riding bikes. That's our mission. Uh, but we are not going to adopt a specific e-bike policy for Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance. Uh, anybody else, uh, organization, taking a, a slightly different stance than that? Here at Cuyahoga uh, Lakes Mountain Bike Crew, we do not have a policy, and we probably will never have a per se e-bike policy. And that's simply because uh, currently our trails are entirely on state land, so we're covered under the Minnesota DNR's acceptance of e-bikes and e-mountain bikes. When we start to get out to county land, um, that will be controlled by the grants that we received, so we won't necessarily have to have a policy. In other words, we won't adopt a policy because it'll depend on both the uh, land manager that we're on and then also the way that those trails were paid for. I, I think, uh, you know, at the NSNBA right now, uh, our official policy is that we defer to the land managers and their policies. And, you know, as Yvonne said there, um, you know, it isn't our business to set policy. We don't have any authority to do so, nor do we 
necessarily desire to do so. Um, that said, I think this is kind of exactly the topic that a lot of organizations right now are wrestling with and how exactly do we kind of approach this. Um, you know, I, I think one of the organizations that I know that has a sort of a policy is the Whistler Off-Road Cycling Association and their official stance is that they are advocates for non-motorized recreation and trails. Um, I guess that opens up the debate to some people that perhaps e-bikes are non-motorized transport, but they're about the only ones I know, I think, that have kind of a policy and they're by their kind of thoughts and definitions, that non-motorized would exclude e-bikes. Um, that said, they are working with uh, their lane managers in, you know, to try and discuss trails that would be potentially suitable for e-bikes and some that might not be and stuff like that. Um, but right now, we're of the uh, no opinion as well. Yeah. But it is something we've talked about and discussed, and we run an annual survey of our members every year to kind of see what they think about issues like this and whatnot. So we're talking about it and thinking about it, but have no policy. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to, to one of those points, Cooper, but just so everybody's uh, got that, that context, the North Shore Mountain Bike Association and, and the Whistler Off-Road, uh, you know, very close to each other, you know, within a, about a, an hour and a half drive uh, down the highway. Uh, Jerry, what about Sorba Tri-Cities? We basically work with our land manager. Um, we help them make what we would consider the, the best decision, you know, basically everyone coming together and talking about, uh, you know, the, the access to trails, um, you know, again, you know, our stance and my personal view is, you know, if, if we're sharing with hikers, then we would rather, you know, have it, um, basically human powered only. And that's pretty much the way, uh, our, all of our land managers are, are, setting their policy. Before we really get rolling into the meat and potatoes of our discussion, I just want to take a quick break to hear about this episode's sponsor. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at Health IQ MTB or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. So Avon, something that that you mentioned and, and essentially really something that that everybody has uh, alluded to is that, you know, policy is kind of for the land manager to to take on. And it's not necessarily a, a place where uh, an organization can kind of take that on. But does does the mountain bike community understand that? Um, do they get that or, or are, are average riders kind of looking to trail associations to be their voice on this topic for the most part? 
Uh, well, I think the answer is both. And uh, again, going back to some of the social media comments, many of our writers believe that we actually had the ability to set policy for Lance. And we, as an organization, according to the social media uh, notices that I've seen and the comments I've received, uh, made e-bikes illegal in Washington state. So, you know, they're trusting us for a whole lot more uh, state power than we actually have when it comes to uh, setting policy. So um, I think it's our members who we need to respond to, our members that we have to inform, uh, even the non-members, right, riders in Washington state that need to understand what it takes to get access, what it takes to maintain access, and what a new user group that is being introduced to the trail, what their responsibility is to then also ensure advocacy access and maintenance of that trail. And I think that's where the missing link is right now, both in industry education and folks who are new to e-bikes coming onto these trails with very little or no understanding of what it took to even be on that trail. And so that's where I want to get back to our members, back to our community, do surveys, do a very specific meeting uh, to find out what it is that e-bikers need, what it is that e-bike sellers need in order to inform their customers, and to make sure that that new user group treats and respects the trail as much as uh, the hikers, the equestrians, and the mountain bikers have had to do and learn over the past few decades to be able to coexist on the trail. I'm just going to jump in there for a second because yeah. I think Yvonne touched on something that I think is important um, and I was kind of waiting for, actually. But I think it's that new Yuzu group that's important to keep in mind. And I think that's where people get upset about the, we'll call it the e-bike issue sometimes, is that there seems to be kind of people that fall on two sides of the fence and to one, one group of people, e-bikes are just mountain bikes and they are no different. And then to some people... Um, in my personal view, falls more in line with the new user group crowd, that e-bikes are just a separate new user group, and that's easy enough to manage and easy enough to coexist with on the trails and everything like that, but it's it's just a separate user group at the end of the day. And I think that's the way most of the land manager policies are uh, are trying to manage them as well. I also want to jump in on this one because... Uh, what I notice is what Yvonne said was that it's not just the end user, the, the newbie, so to speak, that might need some education. I think it's also the industry and bike shops. Um, we have a lot of bike shops here in Minnesota that have e-bikes and e-mountain bikes in the window. And quite frankly, in Minnesota, there are actually very few trails you can legally take them on. And so the education part of the uh, land access is largely missing. And unfortunately, the e-mountain bike industry, whether we're talking about the resellers or further up the food chain, have kind of um, not done the due diligence, I think, in kind of uh, educating their own shops in how land management works. And I know in the United States, it's a little tough because it's 17 different layers of cake and everybody has a different rule. But the fact of the matter is, is at the end of the day, part of the reason that quote unquote newbies are confused is they walk into a shop and they're having a guy tell them, oh, you can take this everywhere. And that's not strictly true. 
we have the same issue in Tennessee. And, and so whose responsibility is it to educate um, not only the, the bike shops, but the end user uh, about where e-mountain bikes can and can't go? I guess ultimately the people who ad- adopt policies that would set where e-bikes can and can't go, be it land managers, are somewhat responsible. And that's, you know, comes from trailhead signage and communication via their channels and stuff but as well um, I think it's up to all of the various user groups on trails to peacefully coexist and so that comes down to education from kind of all sides be it running groups talking to people be it mountain biking associations talking to you know their users and members and stuff like that but I think ultimately it falls on all of us as trail users to educate those around us. I feel like that the the shop owner the people that are putting these bikes out there are kind of missing the, uh, they're, they're not communicating well with their, the, the people that are buying these bikes. You know, they have their own idea. They think that, you know, our trail system should be open. So, you know, I understand that. Um, but when they're not, they're not totally telling these folks exactly where they can ride them. And we have one shop that's really, really good. We have one that's not not doing very well at all. Um, and we have one that's what I would consider, you know, right in the middle of, of both. But uh, I think ultimately the industry has to do better. Hmm. I think the industry has put us in this position in the U.S. that we have, you know, the negativity part of it. Yeah, I'll follow up on that because uh, I think just looking at the work that we've done over the last two years as this has been an issue that we've needed to address in Washington State and nationally, I have gotten two phone calls from bike shops asking me about Evergreen's work on this and what should they tell their customers when they sell e-bikes. I've had a couple of shops call me and say, this is such a good business for us. If you don't support, I will no longer support you, right? But I have not gotten a single call from an industry rep for EMTBs, whether it's any of the major brands that are pushing it. Um, And so even as we are developing this policy, there was no outreach done to an organization like us that sets, um, you know, advocacy uh, member projects. All of what's happening in mountain bike mountain biking in Washington state is for the most part driven or at least overseen by Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance since we are statewide, not a single bit of outreach. And so here's where I'll give a little personal opinion, Brent. Um, So this is not where Evergreen is, but this is my personal opinion. If I truly think about who has the responsibility to um, deliver the infrastructure that's needed to introduce e-bike technology well, then the bike manufacturers, the brands, and people for bikes must step up to fund new trail systems that are open to e-bikes. Because if we're developing new trail systems, just like we have developed new mountain bike trails and used member funds and donations from companies and bike stores who have helped bring new trails online, the e-bike industry is not doing that. They are Uh, to say it very directly, pushing their way into an existing system, which the mountain bike community may or may not be okay with that. It looks like, you know, it's 
50-50 in many cases. However, the hikers and the equestrians that are also on that trail are not open to this new technology, and that is not being addressed. And so if I had my way, I would ask Gary Fisher to give me a call tomorrow and offer me money for a new e-bike legal trail system. Any new systems that come online with new technology, absolutely, by all means, let the e-bikes in. There's no precedent of trail use. You're not going to upset anybody. It's a new trail sponsored by the industry. Now, I understand that's a little bit naive, but if I look at what we've done and how we've delivered money to bring mountain bike specific trails online, then why not apply that same responsibility to the e-bike uh, e bike industry? If you want access, get together as a community group, work with us and show the money to bring new trails online. So there you go. That's my, that's my personal opinion on really for it to be done while the industry must step up. Yvonne, after that answer, I want to buy you a bottle of scotch. Um, <laughs> that that's kind of yeah, that's kind of where I start getting my buttons pushed. I'm actually pretty neutral and see e mountain bikes not positive or a negative light, but I've had some really disappointing conversations with people in the industry. Being here in Minnesota, we happen to have a very large manufacturer who's located in the state next to us. And having spoken to the reps from that particular manufacturer, I've come away really disappointed in kind of their viewpoint. And their viewpoint is, well, the land management issues, the access issues will get sorted out because we'll have so many people on e-mountain bikes. It won't matter. They'll just have to let us in. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of their sort of discussions that I've had with those individuals. And that's so disappointing because it, it to me is just like, well, we're going to make our money now and, and sort of who cares what happens down down the road. And again, I would I would love it if some of these companies that are throwing a big giant full color ads into dirt rag for e-mountain bikes would take that money and say, hey, do you want to build more trails? We'll give it to you if you make sure that those are legal from the get-go from for e-mountain bikes. And I think that's kind of where my new user group standpoint sits as well a little bit. And once again, that's my you know kind of personal opinion. It's certainly not the opinion of uh, everyone in our organization, but it's that with uh, e-bikes as in my mind a new different user group to mountain bikes. So um, you know, advocate for yourselves. Um, you know, advocate for e-bikes. Let's work together as uh, different user groups. As we know, we at the North Shore Mountain Bike Association work with the trail runners to uh, develop trails. Uh, we, we're perfectly happy to work with e-bikes to work on new trails. But at the end of the day, you know, the industry kind of seems to think that um, they can just shoehorn them in with mountain bikes. And I don't think everyone on the advocacy side totally loves that, especially as it doesn't necessarily seem to be coming with uh, a bunch of additional extra funding or support or anything like that. But uh, I, I will say one uh, very large company whose name starts with Specialized uh, has reached out to us to see kind of what uh, what they, we think provincial legislation will end up looking like. But um, that's about the, that's the only contact on it we've had from the industry. I'd like to add that philosophically, I agree very much so with let the industry pay for this. It's a different user group. 
I'm just wondering how many other organizations are where the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance is that it's not really an issue of funding of having trails that are open to mountain bikes or even EMTBs. Um, Boulder County just has a lot of users and the entire area is very well regulated on which trails are for which user groups. It's not as if uh, an industry came in and said, well, we're going to build an EMTB trail, you know, close to town that people can access as a weekday ride. There simply isn't the land for it at this time that would not be approved. So how do we as a community work with this is our existing trail network? It would be very difficult to add on to it for a new user group. Is it at all possible to let some pieces of it be open and still not uh, bring up other user conflicts? Well, and, and so when we think to the the history of kind of mountain biking, you know, this this really is following the same path as what uh, mountain bikes started at. I mean, mountain bikes were built by an industry and they weren't necessarily allowed on trails. I mean, you think of, you know, Marin County, for example, and just because it's a very well documented place as far as mountain bikes being introduced to it's there weren't trails built there. And so are we just repeating kind of the same things with a new, uh, a new user group? Now we've got e-mountain bikes and now they're being introduced to a trail network that wasn't designed for them or they're not allowed to be on. And, and now we're kind of just going through that same process again. And, and maybe the industry is just expecting us to go through that same process again. Well, from my perspective, I would say uh, yes. And, and it, it's another pressure point where we as an advocacy group and we as a community nationwide have to come together to figure out how we adopt this new technology. The technology is there, right? And sales are growing fast. We have to figure out a way that it can be done. And again, to figure out a way that coexistence where it makes sense is is good. Um, the, the pressures we've gone through in the past with the um, uh, full suspension bikes becoming online and suddenly speed becoming a lot faster kind of eliminates the discussion on whether e-bikes, in my opinion, have any impact on trails, speed, changing use for the most part, other than, you know, faster speed on uphills where we're still not going that fast. There isn't really all that much change that this technology brings. It is the motor versus non-motor um, discussion and what that opens up. So for me, I can get into a lot of gray area discussions about disability benefits, expanding the age range, no impact on the trail. These bikes are okay. Uh, but uh, for me, and this is on to the next subject perhaps, mm -hmm. but it is really what does that motor do to my access for grant resources in non-motorized trail funds? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great question to ask, you know, because we have been lumped with non-motorized and we're we're that's you know, and sometimes maybe we're even fighting to get into places because we define ourselves as as non-motorized as we kind of look to the wilderness discussion that's that's happening as well. Does this does this hurt us in a lot of ways as an advocacy group? Does this kind of close doors to us for some uh avenues of of advocacy and access? I think we talk about these trails as like we're the only the only user as a person that spent 20 years working as a environmental and conservation photographer and working with those organizations that are huge 
that honestly see a motor as a motor and it doesn't matter whether you're pedaling it. it doesn't matter whether you know it's under you know 20 miles an hour right it's under 750 watts or what have you i understand that i you know a motor's a motor and those guys i think they're going to be a problem if we open up this huge gray area lumping e-bikes in with with you know human power bikes i just you know i i don't think it's a conspiracy theory i you know, from working with these folks, knowing their stance on bikes as it is now, I seriously believe that we're we're going to run into some issues, access issues. I think we all have those certain individuals in our community that uh, that are are kind of vocal, and 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 they might very well be a vocal minority, but but nonetheless, uh, a squeaky wheel gets the the grease oftentimes. So. Uh, you know, is this, is that really maybe the biggest reason why we should stand up against e-mountain bikes is because this is just going to, to challenge us further in, in, in our goals as, as getting access and maintaining access? Well, I think I've mentioned this before and, and I want to clarify this if it's a little confusing for anybody, but part of the e-mountain bike access issue is the motorized part of it. And I'm talking about both existing trails and future trails. So uh, at least here in the upper Midwest, motorized means motorized. And because we, as clubs in the upper Midwest, pay for our own trail building in one form or another, uh, we have to go for grants that come with strings. So at least like here in Minnesota, there are trails could never have uh, e-mountain bikes on them legally because they were paid for through a grant that says this is going to be human-powered only. The expansion to Cuyuna that's coming up is going to be exactly that way because that's the grant that we did a matching grant on. Just a, a little kind of side story here. Here in my county, Crow Wing, we had a grantee who was through the state of Minnesota give money to our county to purchase a huge piece of property on the Mississippi River for use to save it from development. The county that we're in has a rule where you can apply to put on trails on any county-owned land. The ATV club applied for trails on that new piece of property that uh, the county had purchased with this grant. It got really, really close to the county getting sued because they had allowed ATV trails. What eventually happened and prevented the county getting sued was they agreed to only allow trails on existing uh, logging roads within that property. And the grantee in this case added to their grantee language when you apply for a grant that you cannot have motorized access in any land that's purchased with their grant. So it's, you know, we talk about motorized and you can have whatever feelings you want to on that, but we're also talking about a lot of legal documentation and money that's been going into these trails for years that's going to effectively limit where e-mountain bikes can go, and that's probably going to push forward at least for a while. 
Yeah, I can follow up on that because I think it gets at the crux of the issue of Evergreen's funding and uh, what this technology might mean for us moving forward. So just like you, we have most of our grant sources coming from these non-motorized recreation funds. This year, $1.2 million with 56 new miles of trail coming online, non-motorized trail funds. Now the law officially has assigned EMTBs, right, as non-motorized bikes. That's what this new legislation did. So it is now up into the Recreation and Conservation Office here in Washington State to determine whether they will adopt that as well or whether they continue to treat motor versus non-motor and therefore e-bikes would not be allowed on any trails built by their grant funds. So with this new legislation now treating them as non-motorized bikes, right, uh, class one and two, the RCO could potentially say, well, the new technology is no longer compatible with the intent of our non-motorized grant uses. Therefore, bikes as a whole, because they now include EMTPs, are no longer eligible for non-motorized trail funds. And that's that is my main concern because that threatens the very existence of Evergreens and Evergreens success, right? And I think that's what the community doesn't really understand. So the outcome of industry pushing e-bikes onto trails could be that bikes will be eliminated from a lot more miles of trail. Now, in reality, do I think that's going to happen? Likely not, but it is something to be very careful of. And it's not the mountain bike community that could drive for that change. It's the non-motorized trail users who don't want to see additional mountain bikers on non-motorized trails who could push for that. Um, so that's where I'm currently really active. And I will be working with land managers, as I mentioned before, uh, to figure out that what we adopt makes sense and does not threaten our access to grant resources. What I'd uh, what I'd like to kind of finish this conversation on, and and really the the all four episodes, what I'd like to wrap up on is, what can we do as organizations uh, about this? What actionable items can can we take? Um, what have some of uh, these organizations done, um, and perhaps what can we do? going forwards to uh, whether it's education, awareness, um, whether that's education for the community or even the industry, what can we do uh, that's that's uh, an actionable item moving forward? Starting at the sort of low-hanging fruit here, local clubs and organizations should probably make some phone calls or do some emails for the land managers that they have uh, contact with and really find out where that land manager is and maybe what policies that land manager is beholden to because oftentimes the land manager might have a different idea than the sort of overlord whether that be a city or a county or a state as to the particular pluses and minuses of e-mountain bikes here in minnesota there's been talk of maybe starting to provide handlebar tags for all bikes that are being sold to kind of let people know where the clubs are. And as part of that, there has also been discussion of doing handlebar tags just for e-mountain bikes that kind of says, hey, <laughs> you, you know, here's where you can find out whether or not you can ride this in your local trail. And then um, on a bigger item, I think any of us that have people that are within the industry that we know or have somebody we can bend their ear on, I 
have to get to them and say, some of the issues we're encountering, let us walk you through it so that you understand why we're having these issues. So it just doesn't seem like we're a bunch of uh, haters or Luddites or whatever that are trying to get rid of e-mountain bikes. I think as far as uh, communicating to the retailers of mountain bikes, um, I think Yvonne mentioned that she wasn't getting many calls to ask her opinion. And I suppose just because many retailers aren't reaching out to their local organization doesn't mean that we can't reach back and uh, have a conversation with each of those shops. If you're selling an EMTB, what is your protocol of letting your staff know where one can ride this bike? As in Boulder County, people have been riding EMTB bikes on all the mountain bike trails for the past couple years, and it's not been enforced either way. It's not been regulated, even if it was sort of quasi not legal. And uh, Boulder County has stepped up and proposed some changes that of a blanket ban of all electric bikes on from paved paths to single track. And while this has not been officially voted in, I think our organization does have a responsibility to speak to those retailers and make sure they know what the current situation is, what the proposed situation is, before they sell a bike to somebody in the community and that person is assuming that they can ride it anywhere they would ride a regular bike. Yeah, you know, I think it's, I guess, a little incumbent upon us as clubs and organizations to look to our members for some guidance here as well. You know, ultimately, we're beholden to our, our members as a nonprofit society. and. So their opinion uh, matters at the end of the day, and that kind of ties back to the uh, what's you know our policy as a club. Uh, the question that was posed earlier there, and you know we may not have one, but if our members feel very, very, very strongly one way or the other, perhaps that's uh, a position we need to take. And um, you know then that the the other direction of that street is educating our members around what we're doing. Um, we don't necessarily have the grant funding uh, issues that has been brought up several times here, but uh, you know there are plenty of other issues that we have with our land managers that these uh, potentially throw a little bit of a wrinkle into. So educating our members about what we're doing, you know, cause and effect, and um, what we're trying to do to mitigate various problems and trail capacity issues that we're already facing. And, uh, you know, I think then the other thing I'd like to kind of just point out uh, at the end here as well is to be very clear that uh, you know when we're speaking about I think these that a we're talking about them for myself personally anyway as EMTVs on soft surface trails um, you know I think the one less car kind of uh, argument there on commuters and everything like that is amazing um, for e-bikes and then as well um, you know, I think we're trying here on the North Shore to uh, to be an advocate for the adaptive mountain bike community. And, um, you know, I know the upcoming Rec Sites and Trails BC policy will incorporate in some exceptions for uh, adaptive mountain bikes. And, uh, you know, those are certainly uh, people that we want to get more and more and more of in the trails as, as possible. And uh, if some of those uh, adaptive mountain bike riders need motors, then I'm absolutely all for that in every way. I think that's a really great point because you do hear quite a bit from folks who either either have a, a new injury or because of age and there's a physical condition they're not able to ride anymore. But I always ask the question back, why should I draw the line at an EMTB when I think about a disability? When we're investing funds into trails, why shouldn't those funds 
go to modified bikes, wider wheelbase, adapted bikes first, right? It's If it's a disability issue, then let's broaden that discussion about bikes of any kind. Um, and so that's that it, it gets brought up a lot. Um, and, and I feel like it's a little bit narrow in view if you apply that disability only to an EMTB. Uh, let's then broaden the conversation and think about the cost it would take to modified trails or modified trail access to let wider wheelbase bikes on there as well, for example. I, I was just going to, just to clarify that a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the rec sites and trails piece, uh, policy will be incorporating uh, motorsport trikes and quads, uh, you know, kind of your traditional adaptive mountain bikes. Um, mm-hmm. The real challenge then is kind of what you're speaking to and what does, I think, get brought up a lot in this conversation is, you know, potentially those with uh, I won't even use age, but with hidden disabilities, you know, fibromyalgia or lung conditions or heart conditions and stuff like that. And that's where it does get a little bit sticky and a little bit challenging Mm -hmm. is how do we, how do we accommodate those people and encourage those people without, you know, bringing up so much of the stuff that we talked about in uh, in the last hour and a bit here. Um, So from my perspective, Brent, to answer your question, I think it's now up to us to really educate the e-bike community and the e-bike industry on all of the topics that we've just, you know, addressed over the past hour to, uh, to, to think about how the technology can be introduced and how it can be introduced well, and to really have that understanding of what this technology does for the, the feasibility of a nonprofit like ours, right, where we are dependent on grant funding. And I think if we bring the uh, social media forums to an in-person discussion with our members, uh, whether you're statewide or whether you're just local, the discussions in online forums are quite heated. Let's actually sit down together. I think ultimately we all want the same end goal. We want to ride our bikes. We have to figure out how to do that and how to do that together. Uh, we all enjoy the sport, and that's our mission, is to make sure that as many people as possible can enjoy that sport. Um, so that's what we'll be doing soon is an additional survey now that this legislation is in place and then actually bringing e-mountain bikers together in a forum uh, to discuss what their new user group means for Evergreen and how Evergreen can be helpful and how they can help Evergreen in return. And my biggest question is how many of them will show up, right? It's a new way of interacting and a new way of thinking about access to trail um, for, for a user group that hasn't been quite as informed. Um, so uh, we'll see. Uh, I look forward to the next steps on this, and it, it'll sure be exciting for a couple more years before it begins to settle and sort down, I think. Are there any resources out there that uh, that some of you have been relying on or, or, or using to kind of help you navigate uh, this topic a, a little bit better? You mean other than front lines? Yeah, other than the, other than the pod- <laughs> thanks for the plug. Other than the podcast, <laughs> well, you mentioned a, a number of them in your in your other uh, podcasts on this topic. So I've certainly researched those. But my my biggest my biggest resource now is the members and the other non motorized trail users. Is we're studying the perception amongst mountain bikers a lot. What's the perception? amongst land managers and hikers and equestrians uh, on what this use will do. And while mountain bikers might go try an e-mountain bike and realize that, oh, they're super fun, they're okay, an equestrian is not going to do that. So how do we work with them? What is their opinion? And how do we make sure that they are not intimidated by this new technology? Perfect. 
Any final thoughts from, from anybody? My last kind of closing thing there would be, it's, it's been really nice to have, uh, have a conversation with everyone here. And it seems like, you know, to Yvonne's point about social media as well, that it was a reasonable debate and discussion and that, you know, I don't think um, anyone here is, you know, particularly pro or anti-e-bike either way. I think we're all just excited to work with other users on the trails. And um, it, it's frustrating at times to see how divisive this issue gets, but um, let's just continue to have a conversation. And uh, that's how everyone kind of benefits at the end of the day. Yeah, great, great conversation is, is the key, I think. And, and you know, we've not, you know, it's been a little bit dicey. You know, we have the, the guys that are worried more about their Strava and cheating um, and those type of things. And I just, uh, you know, I guess I'd like for those guys to just let the real, the real, the real issues come about, you know, um, access. It, it can be such a hard topic to have a discussion on sometimes where, right. you know, as soon as, as soon as anything comes up in terms of if you somebody says a motorbike is a motorbike or, you know, somebody says these are just mountain bikes and they're human powered, everyone just gets their guard up and uh, gets very defensive or very aggressive. And that, that's not productive. So we need to just be having good conversations. Yeah, I guess, you know, my, my biggest the, the thing that, that I really try to push to people is we, we have to look at the other land users, or, or, you know, or the trail users, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty firm of a motor's a motor. That's, and, and I'm a mountain biker. Um, because, you know, I push this specifically because that's what are the, the other trail users think. If they're not riding a bike, a motor is a motor to those guys. And, you know, the sooner we, we see that and then try to work with them, the better we're going to be. We can't just stand up there and beat our chest and say, you know, it's not a motor. You know, it's not the same thing. You know, you got to pedal it to make it go forward. You know, again, the deal is, is the motor's helping it move forward. So, you know, and, and it seems to be working here. We, like I said, at the first of the show, we have a new bike park that's in town. And that trail system is going to be, um, they're going to allow e-bikes on it. And, I'm personally not totally happy with it because it's really not designed for um, e-bikes, but, you know, we have two really great bike shops here that sell e-bikes, so they, they need something. And it is exclusive. It's, it's single-use, mountain bikes only. So uh, we won't have that, uh, that same dynamics, you know, uh, the hiker versus the mountain biker versus a motorized, you know, mountain bike. Yeah, I, I really, I guess we didn't pick up on that. Uh, we didn't pick up on that earlier, but I noted it down because I think that's really key. Kind of closing thoughts for me is that Washington State just opened the door slightly to EMTB access. So our role is to make sure that where that access happened, it's done well, and it's done at a pace where we can all get used to that change and have it not be you know, legislation that is done out of fear or worry about what it will do, right? It's based on reality. So let's do it right. And where to do it right is this directional trail system possibility, the single-use trail system policy. If you have the luxury to test 
uh, in those locations. I think that is absolutely wonderful. And then actually determining whether there is a concern or there or there isn't. And if uh, if it works on these single-use trails, wonderful. We start having a place for e-bikes to legally use and they're designed for mountain biking so they are good user experiences then begin to open the door to multi-use uh, where again appropriate um, and then really for the e-bike community to simply respect the signs right now in washington state it's closed unless signed open let's step up as a community and respect that just like when i go riding in a non-motorized trail system and they're hiker only paths i don't use them uh, same with equestrians right we have to coexist and that means following the rules and that's where um, we, we all have an individual responsibility awesome so just want to say thank you to, to everybody for, for taking the time to, to have this discussion and, and not that I thought otherwise, but, but uh, I thank you for, for being respectful and, and for, for not taking what does kind of seem like a, a really um, uh, just angry topic for a lot of people and, and, and just having a, a, a good conversation about the, the, the issues and, and the concerns and the things that that really truly matter you know i wasn't I, w I did not think otherwise when i invited all of you onto the show but uh but nonetheless thank you very much thank you brent great thanks a lot brent thanks thank you brent thank you again brent Something that was really apparent and I'm always reminded of when discussing an advocacy topic with a group of people from various communities is that every organization is an expert at navigating their local landscape. And every community is different. And when you look at what People for Bikes says, you know, Colorado and Minnesota are, are supposed to be examples of strong states for e-mountain bike access. But like always, when you sit down with those who have their boots on the ground, only they can give you the best answer. And therein lies why national advocacy groups and industry leaders can struggle to understand advocacy. At the end of the day, it's complicated. As Joshua said, it's 17 layers of cake to cut through. But as mountain bikers, and in my opinion, as responsible citizens in general, if we want to both have and eat our cake, then we need to do our due diligence. There's no excuse to not do your research on the topic, and you can't tell me that a culture that cares so much about axle standards and wheel sizes can at least give a quarter of an effort into understanding where they can and cannot ride. But perhaps that falls back onto the shoulders of advocacy. When it comes to education and awareness, I'm repeatedly reminded of my favorite Hogwarts professor, Alistair Mad-Eye Moody, Constant Vigilance. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Leave a review if you haven't done so already. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send me an email or audio file at info at FrontlinesMTB.com. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes along with links to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchase made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. The current recommendation is The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. There'll be a new recommendation very soon, so look out for that news on the Facebook page. I'd like to thank all my guests today, Yvonne Krauss, Joshua Rebinock, Cooper Quinn, Wendy Sweet, and Jerry Greer. I've included links to their various organizations in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Artwork is by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. 
And if you're in the central coast of California or you're planning to attend Sea Otter this year, April 19th to 22nd, then I'd love to see you in person. I'll be spending most of the festival promoting Trail Forks and can be found at the Pink Bike Trail Forks tent. So stop by or send me an email and we can set up a meeting time. Finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.